Today's TribCast is presented by AECT, the Association of Electric Companies of Texas. Nearly 40 years working with Texas leaders to promote strong electric markets and investment in infrastructure. Learn more at AECT.net and Walmart. Walmart employs more than 20,000 veterans in Texas and will hire any honorably discharged veterans as of Memorial Day 2013. Explore at blog.walmart.com. Texas Talking Out. What was that that you said? Texas Talking Out. Gonna hoop upside your head. Texas Talking Out. Tell me who can you trust when Texas Gods are in Texas Gods Hola, this is State Representative Armando Wally. Go Cougs, go Strohs, and watch out for Wally in Houston. Enjoy this week's TripCast. And now, here's your host, Emily Ramshaw. Thank you, <laughs> Representative, potentially future congressman I'll as of this week. <laughs> this is Emily Ramshaw here on the 15th of November with your Texas Tribune Tribcast, our weekly podcast about the biggest stories in Texas politics. This is also the last Tribcast in our current Texas Tribune office. Next week, you'll see us in our fancy new unpacked digs across the street. Fancy's a stretcher. Yes, exactly. Uh, I'm joined today by executive editor Ross Ramsey. Howdy. Reporter Alexa Ura. Hello. And reporter Morgan Smith. Hello. That was really um, calm. Without Evan here, there were like... A lot of energy. No yelling. (laughs) Yes. No interjections. Uh, We're also taking your comments and questions via Facebook and Twitter, so please send them our way. Um, We're going to start this week by talking about a big story that Alexa and Morgan worked on this week, uh, along with a couple of their other colleagues, basically on the the sort of pervasive culture of sexual harassment in and around the Texas Capitol. Obviously, probably nothing new here. You know, Ross has covered the Capitol for a lot of years and has heard stories like this. But, you know, in this sort of heightened environment, this heightened awareness around these kind of cases and the sort of Me Too movement, what did you guys learn? Well, I think one thing what we kind of focused our story on in addition to, you know, the anecdotes from, you know, a lot of women who have encountered harassment at the Capitol was, you know, just how very little there is in place to protect victims or to even give them the slightest amount of encouragement to come forward and make any kind of complaint against um, against the people against the people who are harassing them. Um, And then we also, you know, through open records requests, found that there have never been any formal, there has been no formal complaints since at least uh, 2011 on this. And again, that kind of indicated to us like how little trust there is in, in the system. So what were the kinds of stories that you all heard? Well, we spent a few weeks talking to former and current lawmakers and legislative staffers who you know, told us stories uh, that ranged from anywhere to from like, leering looks, um, suggestive comments and remarks, uh, anywhere to assault. You know, we heard from women who there was one woman whose hand was licked by a lawmaker on her way out of a signy die party, and um, we heard from another woman who uh, a lawmaker put his hand up her skirt um, and assaulted her. And and so we, you know, and I, but I think that the one thing that connected all of these stories was sort of the helplessness that the women were left with after being subject, subjected to this and the idea that there's 
this is rampant and it's pervasive, but it goes unchecked. And, and, and Morgan's right that people, they clearly, there is no trust in the system. There are clear flaws in the system. And that's really, I think, what we wanted to focus on um, because we knew that the the incidents are not new. What's happening is not new, um, but this unchecked, the unchecked part of it is mm-hmm. what seemed mostly problematic because you have, I mean, at the end of the day, you're talking about sort of this massive taxpayer-funded operation, and there's little accountability when it comes to sort of potentially unlawful actions. Right. So, I mean, if you're in a traditional, like, workplace, in theory, you go to your HR department. You know, what's the setup in the Capitol if you are a young woman working for or who's been harassed by your boss, you know, a legislator or another staffer? I mean, you know, where do you go? So if you choose, if you decide that you want to make a formal complaint um, in the House, you would go either to the House, the chair of the House Administration Committee, which um, currently is is State Rep. Charlie Guerin, or you could make a complaint to the House Business Office, um, but it would still ultimately be routed to the House Administration Committee to be handled. So basically, lawmakers in the House holding the official. keys, yeah, yeah, elected officials, right. and elected officials who need each other for things, right. <laughs> right. Right. right, right, potentially legislating each other's fates, or you know, right. adjudicating yeah. each other. Uh, and then on the Senate side. On the Senate side, you you would go to Patsy Spa, who is the Secretary of the Senate or the House, uh, Senate Human Resources Office, um, but it would still be Patsy Spa kind of managing, I guess, the complaint process. Um, well, and Patsy Spa is a hire of the Senate, right? Right. And also someone who very, you know, was pretty upfront and when she spoke with us about this and said, my hands are tied when it comes to lawmakers because I can't fire them. You right. know, even so, if, yeah. if she did investigate something and found that a, a lawmaker had sexually harassed someone, there's very little she can actually do in terms of reprimanding anyone. Right. Her quote was pretty amazing. You know, just said she basically, you know, only the people can fire mm-hmm. these guys. Right? right. Yeah. So it's a situation where, like, not only is there no incentive in some cases because when you have lawmakers there's conflicts of interest but there's also not authority you know there as Patsy said you can't she can't fire them um you know even in the house if you know the house administration committee were to go after I think um, a house spokesman provided us uh said that the state constitution had some mechanism to censure publicly censure even force a member to resign but that's a pretty extreme and involved process that um, I don't know if that has ever has you know, you can, ever been forced to resign. You can vote somebody yeah. out of the House. You can vote somebody out of the Senate, but it's got to be amazing. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. talked to, I guess it's a subject of conversation in Washington on um, Roy Moore. If he, gets, if he wins an election, um, there's been some suggestion that the Senate could say, well, we're not taking him in. Um, it'd be extraordinary. And, you know, you've not only lost the power of enforcement, you've lost the power of shaming. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a code of omerta, kind of a code of silence in the legislature where you say, you know, we have a problem here and, the, you know, it's it's to the members to solve the problem and they keep it all quiet and, you know, nothing to see here. Well, and, you know, when we talked to uh, Charlie Guerin, the chairman of House Administration, <clears throat> I mean, I think, you know, we we approached him with a sort of very straightforward interview question and what what was his response to you yeah you know it just i asked him can you talk to me about how the house would handle complaints and he said i don't i'm not going to talk about that because we don't have any complaints and i said well how would you handle it if you did and he said i don't deal in ifs if that happens i'll handle it and that's it and that was you know that was all he was willing to say on that on that topic um i think that has 
changed a little bit, at least on the House side, since our story came out. Um, there have been calls for review and just, I think, a more open dialogue about how these things are handled, but it remains to be seen what's actually going to happen. They, they want to put together training, right? And um, all of the things that you would expect in a, in a, I guess, in a corporate setting or something, you know, there's some kind of uh, conversation out of the speaker's office about uh, getting some training set in and mm-hmm. the women in the house will definitely be at the table. And, um, I, you know, it, it's amazing that that's not in place now. Right. <laughs> Well, I, but well, I think nobody it, took any like preemptive measure. You know, again, right. everyone knew this story was going to come home to Texas, right? It, this story yeah. is happening everywhere yeah. nationally. Like, why not take a preemptive strike and say, you know what? Let's do an internal review of our own policies before these stories get written. There was well, a big Daily Beast story. You know, now our story. There's, there's often. I mean, you know, periodically there's a story about the sexism and the treatment of women at the Capitol. You wrote one several years ago when we were first starting the Tribune out. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they come around. Every three or four years, it's a boys' club. It's been a boys' club forever, and they've had you know any number of opportunities to clean this up, and you know they've always had enough decent members that if they you know were decent members with backbones, they could have cleaned it up, but they never have done it. It's mm-hmm. just not the culture over there to get this fixed until they get into a box where, like the one that they're potentially in right now, where you know. They have to add their, they have to tell their voters what they did about it. Just a reminder that you can send questions our way on Facebook and Twitter. We're getting a lot of those comments already. Uh, Lorena and Amanda are both thanking our reporters for prioritizing the story and for having women lead in the investigation and the reporting. So that's great. Um, Patty asks, are you finding the same names coming up from anecdotes you're getting over and over again? There have been n- names that have come up more than once and you know yeah. women in and around capital circles tend to know generally speaking you know who the people are they should stay away from and i think a lot of your reporting alexa and morgan was about how women have sort of protect themselves at the capital because they don't feel like they have someone else to go to yeah and and i think that was key you know absent a system that really protects them they sort of lean on each other in this in these sort of quiet support groups but you know i, I think that we've placed a lot of emphasis on on the lack of reports and that's not to say that women should be reporting you know that's not to say that that oh how come these women haven't said anything it's more so to highlight that there's just so little trust in this system i think we were also pretty surprised to realize that most a lot of the women that we talked to didn't even know sexual harassment policies were in place at the capitol Mm -hmm. Uh, once we told them about some of the mechanisms that were in place they said they probably wouldn't have trusted them and you know it's a system where if you speak out, you might risk career sabotage or any sort of retaliation. And the system in place doesn't guarantee that you're going to get any sort of recourse and not face any sort of reprisal. And so it's just not built for women to feel safe in, is what we've heard. And I think at the end of the day, when you then look at the system and see that it relies on officials who have sort of little incentive or authority to enforce those policies, it just it just seems like a perfect storm. Right. Well, one person who did feel comfortable giving lending their name to this and speaking publicly about it was uh, State Senator Wendy Davis, who revealed to us for the first time that she'd had you know one of these experiences with a male legislator. What did she tell us? So it was um, it was early in her career as a state senator, and she was at a political event where she was having a conversation with a first-term House lawmaker who reached for it as if he was going to pat her arm, but instead cupped her breast. Um, and she 
kind of removed herself from the conversation and then went and told some of her colleagues in the House and as kind of a punitive measure against this this new House member. Oh, um, in the Senate. Hmm? Colleagues in the Senate. No, she actually told. No. She was oh, in the no. Senate, but she told. Yeah, she told oh, okay. colleagues, colleagues on the House side. On the House side, and, and he was yeah. unable to get any of his, or had a hard time getting his bills passed that session. Um, and I think he ultimately then gave the senator an apology. But it, what was kind of striking about her story is that, you know, she, she recognized that, she, you know, she had this kind of power available to her that you know very very few women at the capitol do and it happened to her because this person didn't recognize who she was um so it's i thought that that was very those two details were just very telling and i think you know like even if you're a state senator your best course of action is to kind of take this like kind of circular path to like get someone's legislation stopped mm-hmm. and then they finally realize they've done something wrong and apologize to you. I mean, you know, this is this extends to the media too and you, you want to be sort of brave enough and bold enough that you would come forward and name names in these circumstances but, you know, a lot of young female reporters have been in positions where you get, right. you know, creepy text messages or people coming up to you at the bar or I mean, you know, I think probably every one of us in this room, you know, has had some kind of experience with this, you know, but, but but you have to protect the sort of sanctity of your job. I mean, you understand why these women are f- afraid to come forward. Yeah, I mean, R- Ross, has this changed? Do you feel like over the course of your tenure covering the legislature, or has it always was it worse before? Is well, it- I mean, yeah, I mean, there've been periods when it was mm-hmm. worse. There were, um, but you know, it's that's not to say it's not bad now. I mean, it's mm-hmm. completely out of hand, and it's never, you know, it's never really been controlled. And there's a culture of entitlement over there, in general, and certainly, you know, it's mostly a male place. There've been I looked this up at the Legislative Reference Library. In the history of Texas, we've had 5,415 male legislators and 155 women. Um, wow. Pretty bad odds. <laughs> I think uh, the part that's, you know, to me, the most depressing part about this is that, you know, sexual harassment at the Capitol is not new. Right. The sort of abuse of power, you know, someone in power taking advantage of someone with less power is not new. Right. But we've somehow reached this point where there's sort of like collective outrage and disgust when you hear these stories. But it feels like absent sort of the national conversation that might have not happened. And even even what we saw legislative leaders calling for maybe might have not happened either. Well, I think it's interesting. You know, there's also another piece of timing here that we haven't really talked about in our stories or really at the, you know, just talking around the newsroom. Right now we're in a filing period for an election. Mm -hmm. And for the next two or three weeks, these people are, you know, saying they will or won't run for office. And some of them are at some political peril or risk in March 1st and then in November of next year. And I think some of them, you know, if, if you're one of these guys who does this, you're probably looking at this and going some version of, oh, shit, I might get caught now. You've and, already and, had some people pull back, right. I think, from some local races over right. stuff like this. That's exactly right. So, yep. I, you know, I think this, you know, starts to get onto voter radar and gets a whole different kind of attention from legislators than you know, than it has when it wasn't on voter radar. It, it works, you know, in a, in a in an analogous way to ethics reform. It doesn't matter until it matters, and mm-hmm. it matters when voters sort of tune into it and go, oh, you're doing what? Mm-hmm. Um, this kind of behavior is completely 
well established in the Texas Capitol, and there have been moments when it was worse and moments when it was less bad, but it's bad over there. It's mm -hmm. higher than it ought to be. It's higher than it probably is in the private sector, and there's really nothing the women can do about it at this point. Oh, that's really uplifting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, if you're listening on iTunes, uh, just a heads up, we would love it if you left us a review and subscribed. Those ratings really help us reach more listeners like you. One recent review from Terrell, Paul on iTunes said, if you want to take a peek behind the curtain of Texas politics for 30 minutes at a time, this is the broadcast for you. We will try to keep it to 30 minutes. Evan isn't here today, so we might actually be able to do that. Um <laughs> You know, Ross, obviously what you were just saying about local races really translates into the conversation that's raging in Washington right now, where GOP Alabama Senate candidate Roy Moore has slowly but surely sort of lost virtually all of his endorsements over these multiple allegations that he pursued. America's you know, favorite mall rat. Yep, young women, as uh, women as young God. as 14, teenagers, <laughs> adolescents as old as 14 while he was a DA in his 30s. Um, he's denied all these allegations. What are the various ways in which Texas's senators handled this? Because both of them had originally, obviously, endorsed him. Well, I mean, they're in this box. I mean, this is this, you know, in the Texas legislature, one of the problems here is going to be, can the legislature police itself without these kinds of investigations and conversations invading their legislative work. You know, I've got to get a bill passed and I'm talking about so-and-so and you get into immediate conflicts of interest. And we saw that on some level with Republican members of the U.S. Senate who really need a Republican to replace Jeff Sessions right. in the U.S. Senate. Their numbers are thin. They've had very a very tough time passing, you know, what they consider to be priority legislation. They can't lose any votes. They can't lose any seats. And yet they've got a guy that they think is probably unqualified. Under any other circumstance, they would say, get rid of this guy. But they're stuck. He can't get off the ballot. Um, they weren't strong enough in seeing during a Republican primary what their risks were. And now they're stuck with this guy. Yeah, where's the brown envelope on that guy? Like, where's yeah, the where's oppo the, research yeah, file? Right. <clears throat> so, you know, they're stuck. And they have slowly come around to most many of them to a position of... You know, it's probably easiest identified by Mitch McConnell's word, I believe the women. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're coming to that position. I think John Cornyn's finally come to that position. Ted Cruz had this really tortured statement that kind of captures where a lot of these guys are. And um, it's, it sounds like it comes from the guy who had a hard time with that presidential endorsement a couple of uh, 18 months ago. <laughs> Who? <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, both last week and this week, there are serious charges of criminal conduct that, if true, not only make him unfit to serve in the Senate, but merit criminal prosecution. Judge Moore, like any American, is entitled to present a defense. He's entitled to put forth the facts demonstrating that the charges are not true. But as it stands, I can't urge the people of Alabama <laughs> to support a campaign in the face of these charges without serious persuasive demonstration that the charges are not true. So wow. basically, I am no longer endorsing you. I'm, an not, editor. I'm yeah. not suggesting the, that you vote for I can't suggest that you vote for this guy, but I can't really tell him. The non-endorsement yeah. is not in that paragraph. Right. It's, well, know. and neither did either Cornyn or Cruz say, I believe the women in the way you heard that from others. Not in the way that, not in the you know, direct way that you heard I mean, it from I think Mitch they McConnell both said, or that you heard it from Mitt Cornyn Romney. seems stronger to me. I mean, me. I think yeah. Cornyn still said, though, if, tr if, if true. true right. yeah. no, I think that's fair to say if true. I mean, the guy has not been criminally prosecuted, you know, but but to sort of hedge on whether you're taking away your endorsement or not to, to me the you know the best politics here is the hardest path and you know Mitt Romney sort of hit this he said mm -hmm. you know politics you know it's true in criminal law that he gets to 
have a trial and you know declare his innocence and find a resolution that way. But this isn't criminal law. This is politics, and as a matter of politics, you're done. I think the women have a credible story, and he ought to get out of the race. I mean, that's that's what Mitt Romney did. Right. Now, it should also be said he's running for office, right? <laughs> he also wants to be a senator. And if you're if you're Cruz or Cornyn or the leadership, you got to look at Mitt Romney and say, you know, that may be the seat that we pick up when we lose this Alabama seat. So right. there's a lot at play there, too. So if he is elected anyway, obviously he goes into office and if there's some kind of criminal prosecution, although I wonder what the statute of limitations is for something like this. He goes to Washington right. and we then find out, I'm blanking on the name of the head of the the Republican Senate committee uh, who said that Co uh, Corey, um, what's his name? Somebody help us on Twitter or something. Um, <laughs> who said that the Senate shouldn't seat him. Mm-hmm. That you know, um, send this back to Alabama for you know for what processing. a special election or how does that? Yeah, I don't even know how this would. Well, work. Well, you know, you would have an empty seat. You would have you know, you would kick it back to right. Alabama and you would have an empty seat. Now, is it too know, late for an independent? The ballot's set, right? I mean, the ballot is set. So you can you do can a write-in write campaign. Mm -hmm. You can do a number of things. There's a, there's been a conversation about having Corey Jeff Gardner sessions. is what came in. Corey, Corey Gardner. Gardner. Thank you. Thank um, you, social media. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, whoever you are. Yeah. Um, or Bobby Blanchard. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, I guess I'm just wondering how this would have played out had this been, and this is in no way trying to tie Cruz mm -hmm. or Corn into any sort of conduct of the sort, but had this played out in Texas in this way, either at the, when you're talking about federal officials or our state elected officials, I just, I don't know, I can't even begin to imagine if elected officials would actually well, speak out in the okay, same way. Okay, let me give you an example. No one pulled their endorsements of Donald Trump after we had all right. of these allegations, yeah. I mean, countless allegations like this against Donald Trump. I think this is changing. I think we're in a changing... It's a different time. I think we're in a changing environment and um, in a, a changing political environment. And we do this from time to time. And, and the norms of what's acceptable in politics right here... You know, you move forward 18 months and that's not acceptable anymore. You can have that on issues where you say in a Republican primary four years ago, um, I, I'm, a, I'm for same-sex marriage and we shouldn't mess with that. And then you get a constitutional change and then you get a legal acceptance of it that's followed by a political acceptance of it. In this one, you're basically getting a new calibration of the moral sensibility of half the voters, mm -hmm. um, the women, and, right. and they're speaking up. And if you're a politician and you're good at it, you're going to look at that and say, I need to be in harmony with my voters and correct this. And if anybody's in disharmony with their voters, their opponent's going to use it. I think women have been speaking up for a long time. I don't think they've been listened to until recently. I mean, that's been the biggest sort of seismic shift just in the last several There's months. There's been yeah. consequences for people, at right. least, you know, in some of the private sector or Hollywood situations there have been right. swift consequences and countless people, people women have spoken right. up and yeah. countless people countless women before those women who basically had their careers destroyed right. or mm -hmm. jeopardized over this right. Yeah. Right. I, mean, I mean that's what's been so taken seriously yeah, yeah that's what's so sad to me is that there you know for all these brave women who have come forward now and the men are facing consequences there are so many not just men uh, victims who are coming right. forward and their perpetrators right. are facing consequences there's so many victims who have you know been victims doubly you're because also, they weren't believed or they, you know. You're also going to get some of these flips, and I think people are watching this. You know, Roy Moore has two problems here. One of them is the obvious one. You're not supposed to chase 14-year-olds around the mall when you're 32 years old. The other one God. is that you, if you're going to be sanctimonious and a moral arbiter and you do something immoral, you're going to get bounced harder than when it, you know, your hypocrisy is going to hurt you and turn mm -hmm. around on you. And I think, you know, uh, in, a, in politics, this has now become 
you know, on a on a straight up practical level, this is a tool. We're going to see this in mailers. We're going to see it in campaigns. We're going to see it in those quiet brown envelopes. So and so did this on this date to so and so. Go check it out. Um, this is now in play. All right. Well, uh, just a reminder, if you're tuning in on Facebook or Twitter, you have a few minutes left to send your questions and comments our way. Um, we've been talking about elections, and we've been talking about how few women there are in the legislature, particularly Republican women in the legislature. And uh, one of those is is GOP State Representative Sarah Davis, who is up for re-election and finds herself with a challenger in the primary in, in 2018. And she now has one other uh, opponent, or at least somebody pretty big named who has come out against her. Yeah, the $40 million dollar man. Um, <laughs> Governor Greg Abbott has um, said, I'm going to endorse against Sarah Davis in this race, which is, you know, extraordinary just in practice in Texas politics. Governors don't get into races involving incumbent legislators mm -hmm. of either party, much less their own. And the governor, you know, decided to, to break that um, tradition and endorse against Sarah Davis. It's an interesting race. She is, you know, Mark Jones is a political scientist at Rice University and rates the legislature on their votes from most liberal to most conservative just based on their votes mm -hmm. compared to all of the other legislators. And Sarah Davis is on the left end of the GOP left and the, the right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's the most, you know, most liberal or least conservative, however you want to characterize it. She says that's a reflection of her district. And in fact, when she won the seat She's narrowly right. from yeah. Ellen Cohn, <laughs> who's now on the Houston City Council, it was a tight race. Mm -hmm. You know, the risk for the governor here is that you endorse someone in a Republican primary who's more conservative than Sarah Davis, who then gets to November and is more conservative than the district. Right. Uh, this is a district that Hillary Clinton won by um, 15 points or so while Sarah Davis was winning. So she outperformed the Democrats in the district. And, uh, you know, her side points to this and says, look, you know, I'm the kind of Republican you're going to get out of this. Mm -hmm. um, the governor, interestingly, in Patrick's VTech story said, um, this is just the first name. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, he said basically, I'm right. making a list and I'm checking it twice, didn't yeah, you know? So, so Santa's sharing his naughty list. Now. Right. I mean, are we seeing a new Greg Abbott? I mean, this is this feels really personal. Well, I, you know, he's declaring sides in the in a split Republican Party. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the bet on that is, you know, I mean, he's pretty popular. He has a, a lot of money. I mean, he does really well in our polls. Uh, people think he's doing a generally think his voters in particular mm -hmm. think he's doing a generally good job. So he's solid that way. Um, and he doesn't have any opponents in March. Mm -hmm. So is he why putting not build his, the legislature you want? I mean, is he putting his thumb on the scale beyond lending his name to her opponent? You know, is he campaigning for this? I don't, I don't know if he's going to mm -hmm. pay for mailers, if he's going to mm -hmm. go down there. I would imagine if you're going to do this, you'd better do it well. There's no point in um, saying I'm for that one and then watching your side lose well and then if they lose your the person you back lost i mean if if this is just the first name he's going to end up with a list of people who are his candidates and then right. there's going to be a scorecard at the end of this to see how many of them actually won and how many didn't he only gave strong assistance to two republican house members in last cycle's elections and both both of them lost their runoffs wayne smith and doug miller um so his record on this isn't great. And it's difficult for any governor or any anybody who's not in a race to really put their thumb on a scale in a meaningful way in a race. You know, if it's if it's a giant personality and you really do a persistent campaign, um, it can it can throw a race one way or the other. But I think, you know, this is going to be a test of whether Greg Abbott has that kind of political clout and whether Sarah Davis's 
ground operation in our own district is any good. What's your bet? I always bet on the incumbent. <laughs> uh, I mean, don't they have a, a history? You know, she hasn't always been the biggest fan of his. You know, she really pushed for a bunch of different ethics reforms this last session and I think felt like she was stymied, right? Yeah, the you know, from the governor's side, you know, she she they said that, you know, she wouldn't work with Van Taylor in the Senate on the ethics reforms and that she was one of the reasons his ethics reforms did not pass. Um, I think there's a little truth on both sides of that. She would, you know, governors never get exactly what they ordered. You know, you right. sort of tell the kitchen you want a chocolate chip cookie and you might get oatmeal. Um, Oatmeal's he, pretty good. He didn't get any cookies at all. <laughs> That's really well, hot. Speaking of cookies, uh, <laughs> Ash asks, if Sarah Davis wins, then what are the consequences for Abbott, if any? You know, what's the kid's name in The Simpsons? Nelson. Ha ha. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, you you come into a you come into a legislative session in January 2019 with a governor who's got egg on his face, opposed somebody who's still in the House, and I imagine she'll be telling all of her colleagues about it. Well, and I mean, the the Republicans, the majority in the House, is not really a danger absent this, right. you know, in, incredible circumstances. A new redistricting map. Right. And so let's not go there yet. <laughs> but the idea that, you know, this, this call for sort of like purity within the Republican Party, when you start sort of endorsing candidates that are more conservative than the ones that are there, knowing you have this safe majority, it doesn't really do much for the GOP's efforts to sort of diversify their, you know, their tent. They've thought, you know, we're this big tent, but doing this doesn't really bolster those efforts if you're saying, well, you're not conservative enough. Actually, never mind. But on the other hand, if you win, if you're the governor and you win, you start your second term with a set of House Republicans who are watching you very carefully because you might endorse against them. Right. And it might bring the House into line with your politics in a way that they weren't, for example, in the in the special session of the legislature when they only passed 10 of his 20 items and didn't pass some of his big ones. Right, right. All right, well, that's all the time we have this week. If you like listening to the TribCast, please do us a favor and leave us a review on iTunes. And if you value the Tribune's nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom, please consider making a donation at support.texastribune.org. Thanks to Shiny Ribs for our music. And on behalf of Ross, Morgan, Alexa, and our producers, Todd and Bobby, this is Emily. Thanks for listening. Texas talking. Texas talking. Texas talking. Texas talking. like your phone goes boop and you go what the fuck <laughs> yeah.